to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Taylor Scollin. Sarah Bartnika is off this week. So if you've been keeping up with the business news over the past year or so, you've been kind of through a whiplash of emotions, I think. There's been talk of a recession that's been looming for a long time. Inflation was way up and then it came down quickly and now maybe it's going back up again. No one really seems to have a firm grasp on what's actually going on in the economy. There's a lot of chaos and confusion and each week seems to bring with it some new trend that you have to stay on top of and be aware of and make decisions around that affect your life. So today I wanted to talk to someone who can really break down everything that's going on in the economy from a macro level and explain how it connects to your personal financial decisions, how you manage your own portfolio and your investments and what you actually do with your money. Now, whether you have a little to invest or a lot, or maybe you're just thinking about getting into the market for the first time, I think this is a really important time to look at everything that's going on around us and try to figure out how it connects back to your personal financial situation. And we really do have a great guest on today to walk us through all of that. Andre Bruno is the Director of Exchange Trade Funds at Fidelity Canada. And he's joining us today to share his take on what's going on out there in the economy. Andre, thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I look forward to, uh, to our time together here today. Okay, so why don't we start with a high-level look at uh, where the markets are at today. Like the S&P 500, uh, when I checked yesterday, might have changed a bit today. It was up around 15% on the year. What's what's driving that? Just give, paint a picture of uh, what's moving uh, markets right now. Yeah, so I mean, when you, when you take a kind of a sector breakdown of of kind of the S and P five hundred, so you know, tech is is has been a main driver for returns this year. Um, so if you if you take a look at kind of the gig sectors, um, you know, communication services, information technology are are, are the main winners there. Uh, kind of coming in third place is consumer discretionary, which is a little bit interesting. If you would ask me, you know, at the start of the year, like, would consumer discretionary be having this good of a year in terms of returns, I probably would have said no. Um, you know, primarily just kind of predicated on this whole, you know, obviously inflation, um, obviously, you know, a lot of people talking about a recession. So obviously, you know, when you think going into a recessionary environment, consumer discretionary is in kind of an area of the market you think is going to do so hot. But, um, you know, here we are, and it's doing quite well. Um, in terms of being the third third best performing sector in in kind of the S and P five hundred, um, so you know for the bulk of the returns, it has been a tech driven rally. Um, you know a lot of that. Um, you know if you think about last year, tech obviously didn't have a great time. It, you know interest rates going up typically doesn't portend for good return outcomes for um, you know information technology in the tech sector in general. Um, but it has been interesting. You know in a lot of sense, you know tech kind of went through its recession last year. You got a lot of layoffs. Um, you know, tech companies certainly did a good job of getting their cost structures a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more lean. Um, they obviously had such a great run up over the last decade. Tech has been great. You know, you think about the FANG stocks um, have done tremendously well over that time period. Um, you know, but, you know, with that success comes a little bit of, you know, loose spending, um, whether you're looking at, you know, just projects or, or, or just, uh, you know, employees and hiring. 
Um, so I think they got a lot of that under control last year. And I think that's one of the, you know, one of the main reasons why it's probably having a better year this year than, than probably people were expecting. Okay. Well, I do want to talk about tech a little bit, but why don't we stay on the consumer spending piece for uh, a, a little bit longer? Cause I am curious what you make of the relationship between things like inflation and interest rates and uh, the performance of that sector. Cause you know, as you said, a lot of, as we were going into the year, people were saying recession, 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 uh, inflation was obviously at a place where much higher than we'd like it to be. And yet, uh, people have been resilient. Consumer spending has been, has been pretty strong and those companies have been performing okay for now. So uh, what do you attribute that to? Yeah. So, I mean, if you take a breakdown of retail sales, um, and you kind of break it into the goods and services components. Um, the, the goods component hasn't been, you know, super, super strong. A lot of that's been coming from the services side of, of, of the equation there. So services consumption is, is still relatively strong, um, but we are seeing a bit of kind of slowdowns in, in kind of the good side. Whether you're looking at Canada or the U.S., it's, it's more or less a similar story there. Um, obviously, interest rates um, have taken a bite out of people's wallets. Inflation has taken a bite out of people's wallets as well. Um, you know, there, there is a bit of a discrepancy between the sensitivity of interest rate rises between Canadians and U.S. Uh, Canadians are generally a little bit more sensitive to interest rate rises relative to our American counterparts. Um, and, and there's there's a couple factors at play there. So, you know, when you consider just overall debt levels of the consumer, Canadians are, are a little bit more levered than than our American counterparts south of the border there. So um, when we talk about that, we, we take a look at the consumer. We're somewhere around kind of the 180 percent, give or take depending on what month to data changes month to month, but around the 180% level in terms of consumer debt to income. So what that means to break it down a little bit for folks, when we're talking about consumer debt, we're not including mortgage debt in this calculation. We're talking about credit cards, hmm. um, you know, unsecured lines of credits and things of that nature. Um, I believe the Americans are somewhere around 130, 140% on that number. So they're slowly rising up there as well. Um, so, you know, given the the debt levels were certainly a little bit more uh, sensitive again to interest rate changes, and again, that's going to funnel down into people's you know, spending habits and ability to spend. Um, you know, the other thing to look at when you, when you're taking a look at you know interest rate sensitivity to the consumer as well is is the mortgage market. You know, obviously, we know we've, we've had a tremendous run up in in real estate prices in Canada. Um, but you know, when you take a look at kind of the mortgage market and you compare contrast versus the U.S. market, so in Canada we're about 50-50 in terms of you know floating rate mortgages to fixed rate mortgages. Uh, so that alone introduces tons of sensitivity to the consumer. Obviously, your mortgage rate's going up. That's going to take a big bite into your into your ability to, ability to consume. So if you look at the U.S. to compare, they're about 99% fixed rate mortgages, and a lot of those mortgages are 30-year terms. So as we know here in Canada as well most of them are five-year terms. So again, you know, there's the floating rate people that are going to hit immediately, but there's also a lot of Canadians who are now coming up into renewal season who are now having to reset their mortgages at higher interest rates. So uh, from a consumer perspective, again, I think I think Canadians are a lot more sensitive. Um, and again, we, we have been, you know, our retail sales, especially on the good side, has been a little bit worse than, than our U.S. counterparts. And I think you're going to continue to see that trend in the year end. Um, something that's interesting about the U.S. in terms of their ability to consume is, you know, there was that moratorium on uh, student loan debts, and that's coming that's coming up in in October. So, student loans people are going to have to start paying back their student loans again in October. That moratorium is running off, so I think that's also going to probably take a bite into 
to consumption down on the U.S. as well. So uh, certainly going to be keeping an eye out and see, see what the impact there is come October when, again, that moratorium does come off. When you read news about, let's take the latest inflation data from the States, for example, when I'm curious how you uh, interpret and digest that news in the current environment, because, you know, people listening probably read a lot of business news and economic news, but given all the different signals out there, it's kind of difficult to know what's most important, how they should actually act on that information. Like, how do you look at that, these things and then make decisions around, you know, professionally around what you're reading? Yeah. So of course, the, kind of the, the main thing um, with regards to inflation, um, you know, as we know, you know, the main tool in the central bank toolbox is, is interest rate policy. Um, so obviously with strong inflation comes higher interest rates. And we've obviously seen that over the last, you know, two years. Last year was, you know, well over 300 basis points of tightening from both the Fed and the BOC, which is a lot more tightening than a lot of folks had forecasted going into last year. Um, so obviously the main thing there is, you know, it's going to hit your fixed income portfolio. And I'm sure many folks and many listeners have noticed, you know, take a look at their fixed income returns last year. Um, you know, it, it was it was probably one of the worst bond years we've had in you know many, 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 many decades. Um, so so that's like kind of the easiest correlation to draw between, you know, inflation, interest rates and, and, and your fixed income. Um, typically as well, higher interest rates typically doesn't portend to positive valuations for equities as well. You know, if you think about just kind of how equities are values and there's many, many ways you can value equities, but, you know, present value of cash flows is probably the, the easiest way to explain how higher interest rates affect kind of equities and, and, and typically lead to lower valuation. So, you know, when you're forecasting out a company's earnings and company's cash flows over 10 years, you know, you typically divide it by some sort of, you know, interest rate, um, you know, kind of on the denominator there, right? So as the denominator gets bigger, the present value of those cash flows comes lower. So again, typically higher interest rates typically again leads to kind of lower equity valuations there. Um, again, just just to just to pop back to bonds as well. Um, what people have to understand is there's this inverse relationship between interest rates and bond prices. So as interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Uh, so again, making that easy tie back to higher inflation, higher interest rates. Typically lower valuation for equities and typically lower valuations for bonds, and I think you saw a lot of that last year, as you know, both equity markets and fixed income markets were getting hit pretty hard. Um, last year was an interesting year because you know we, we always talk about how this you know there's this negative correlation between bonds and equities, and we we hold bonds because when equities you know do poorly, typically our bonds do well. The last year was kind of that perfect storm where equities were doing poorly, but interest rates were also going up at the same time. So you kind of got hit from both sides there last year. This year, obviously, a little bit better, as you mentioned. Equities are, are bouncing back, primarily led by kind of the tech sector. There, fixed income is up, you know, mildly, modestly, still in the black, which is a, a massive improvement over last year. There, um, but again, you know, when we tie it back to equities a, a little bit as well uh, in terms of earnings. Um, so, getting away from just that pure valuation metric, um, when you think about earnings as well, typically in, in inflationary environments, that does typically lead to a compression in earnings um, in terms of earnings uh, sorry I should say uh, in terms of profit margins and you know if, if you think about it you know obviously there are certain companies that are you know have a lot of pricing power and they can pass on you know 100% of the increase in their cost you know take it to an extreme example can pass 100% of their increase in cost down to the consumer 
There's other sectors where, you know, whether it's, you know, just strong competition or what have you, um, but a lot of corporations can't necessarily pass on 100% of those costs. So that's where you get that margin compression and you get that kind of revision lowers of earnings. And in fact, you've seen a ton of lower revisions for earnings this year uh, and they continue to get kind of revised down a little bit. Um, I know the current earnings season, there were, you know, it looked good on the surface in terms of you had a lot of companies beat expectations, but what people need to appreciate as well is, you know, those earnings revisions kept going lower and lower and lower. So it does get easier to beat earnings when, you know, you're continually revising uh, earnings lower. Yeah, the headlines at the end of the day might not actually reflect the the underlying reality for these companies. So uh, how do you, you know, if you're in this environment where your fixed income is getting hammered and your equities are getting hammered, you know, that we were in for at least part of last year, as a retail investor or someone who is just trying to manage their portfolio, what do you think is the appropriate response to that? Like, how do you deal with that? Do you just ride it out and wait for the next year and things to turn around or what's the right approach? Yeah. Like ultimately if you think about last year, um, you know, being, being defensive in your equity sleeve, uh, was certainly kind of the right play there. Um, you know, you know, generally, you know, if you think about compounding returns time and time again, and in over long periods of time, you typically do want to stay invested in the market. And, And the reason there is, you know, no one has a crystal ball, you know, if, if you could time the top and sell all your equities and go to cash, we'd have people do that. But as we know, that's next to impossible to do. So, you know, when you, when you are seeing those equity market drawdowns, you know, they, the name of the game is again, stay diversified, but also try to get defensive and just try not to try to outperform the market on the downside. It's very important to outperform the market on the top side. And obviously we have tons of portfolio managers who that's their bread and butter. Um, you know, but we also do have, you know, and I'm thinking specifically, um, through some of our portfolios, we have those folks who focus on that downside protection. So, you know, if the market's going down 1%, you know, I only want to be down, you know, 0.7%. 0.7%. So um, it's a term we, we call downside capture, and, and it is a term we apply to kind of portfolio management. Um, so again, looking for those managers who do have those strong downside capture numbers. So again, they're less sensitive to the downside of the rel- relative to the market. So that's very important. In terms of like what folks did last year when you think about fixed income, I think, you know, the market's pretty smart. Um, and, and what we saw is a lot of folks just buying cash products saying, you know, equities are getting hit, bonds are getting hit. I'm getting 4% at the start of the year. Later, closer to the end of the year, you're getting 5%. Uh, we saw a lot of money flow into kind of those cash alternatives, whether it's, you know, GICs, sh- short-term treasuries, um, you know, high interest savings accounts, things of that nature, basically saying, you know, I'm just going to park it in something safe, something, you know, relatively low risk, super low risk. In, in fact, I'm going to clip my 4 or 5% and just kind of weather the storm until we get a little bit more direction in terms of, you know, where things are going. Because I think even last year, there was a lot of talks about, you know, recessions coming, recessions coming, you know, the yield curve was inverted, both in Canada and the US. You know, historically, that's been a pretty good indicator for, you know, a recession is coming. Uh, the one particular thing to note about that indicator is, you know, it might indicate that a recession is coming, but it doesn't really tell you when it's coming. Could be in six months, could be mm. in two years. You don't really know. Um, so, so again, yeah, just in that type of environment, I think the market was smart and went to cash, just clipped its 5% coupon, um, and, and then just tried to weather out the storm. So this year, obviously it's been a little bit better. You've been able to eke at returns in the equity market, albeit rather concentrated fixed income is up smalls, you know, one to 2%, depending on what index you're looking at. Um, but we are still seeing a ton of money go into kind of those short-term products, especially given that the fed and the BOC have continued to raise interest rates. 
um, you know, people are able to get again, you know, still high, you know, mid five and a half percent return on 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 short term cash, which is a great return. I think you're going to see it, you know, kind of an inflection point for that trade at some point. You know, if we do get this recession and it starts to materialize, I think you're going to see folks starting to rotate out of some of those cash products and uh, maybe reach for some duration. So get back into bonds. Um, you know, when mm. exactly is that perfect time? Um, you know, again, I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I wouldn't have to have a day job. But um, you know, at some point, you know, if the if the macro headwinds you know come to fruition, um, people are going to start to reach for duration again. Duration is going to be your friend in that recessionary environment. You know, when your stocks are coming off, your bonds specifically or treasuries are going to are going to help you out in that scenario. When people are moving more of their money to these cash products like GIC and so on, does that impact the performance of the equity markets like does that do you see money moving out of that and into these cash products and then stock prices falling as a result is there any relationship there? there's there's definitely a little bit of that um you know you, you're definitely seeing people especially when people are getting defensive they're probably looking to go a little bit underweight equities um so some of that rotation is certainly happening but i think the biggest loser especially last year and and, and particularly for this year has been kind of longer duration fixed income products um, so you're seeing just a lot of folks allocate away from those bonds and into those cash products. Um, so that's kind of the main thing we've been seeing. Um, again, certainly a little bit on the equity side as well, but, um, you know, generally people, people aren't going to, you know, sell down all their equities and just put it into cash. Right. I'm sure there are some investors out there, but, you know, when you think of kind of the financial advisor space or the portfolio manager space, um, you know, you're going to go relatively underweight equities, but you're not going to shift that all over. Okay. So maybe we can talk about tech a little bit. Um, you know, you already talked a little bit about how Fang is is up quite a bit this year, and then also there's big AI winners like Nvidia that are up way way more than that. Um, but you know, it seemed like last year the tech was not the place to be, at least to me. You know, it was getting uh, pummeled and high rates. People were saying tech has lost its its shine. So what do you make of that rebound? What what accounts for that? Yeah, for sure. And I think we touched on it briefly there. Um, you know, j- just shoring up cost structure last year. Again, I mentioned there there were a ton of ton of layoffs in the tech sector last year. Um, you know, earnings hits, what have you. So um, you know, and especially as talking to some of our our growth managers, um, you know, their argument is, you know, tech went through its recession. Now we're on the other side of it for tech. Um, so, you know, some of our, some of our guys are, are pretty bullish on the space. Uh, again, you mentioned some emerging trends, obviously AI is, is, is really kind of, a lot of people are talking about, is this, is this a new wave? Is this the new trend? It'll be really interesting to see how, how kind of that plays out. Um, obviously we've had some, you know, big advancements, obviously chat GPT came out and that's kind of started, you know, stirred up quite a bit of buzz in the general AI space. Um, you know, personally, I think it is very exciting. Um, you know, I think there are obviously a lot of applications and implications for, you know, AI and, 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 and its applications for the business world for sure. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know, if we do go to a recession, though, um, you know, I'm not so sure, you know, tech is just going to be able to, you know, blow through that and, and, and absolutely maintain positive momentum and maintain positive throughout that. Um, you know, I, I'd expect that even if we do get a recession, you're probably still going to see a bit of a hit to the tech sector. Um, I think the real question is, 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 is it still going to outperform kind of the broader market on the downside? So um, mm. that'll be interesting to see. I don't have a good answer for that. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, historically, techs got hit pretty hard in recessionary environments. 
um, as it's typically been a you know growth area and growth typically gets hit pretty hard. But um, it'll certainly be interesting to see. Okay, well, maybe that's a good uh, point to move into the recession risks that we are facing now. Um, I guess, how are you thinking about that, uh, given how everything's unfolded over the first you know eight months of this year? Do you think a recession is still likely? Uh, maybe the risks differ. I think you already talked a little bit about how the U.S. and Canada might be in a different boat. Um, just walk us through your thoughts on that uh, particular risk. Yeah, I, I, cer- I certainly think the risk exists. Um, I'm certainly probably in the camp of I think I think we will potentially get some sort of recession. I'm, I'm thinking probably sometime sometime next year. Um, again, I do think the risks are a little bit higher in Canada relative to the U.S. Again, you know th- that these is being predicated on the strength of the consumer. Um, you know, you take a look at some of the underlying data. Um, you haven't really seen the shoes shoe drop in employment just yet. Um, you know, employment is that lagging indicator. So again, it, it kind of tells you where the economy was. It doesn't tell you where the economy is going. Um, you know, but if you take a look at some some more of the leading indicators like manufacturing numbers, ISM manufacturing numbers, they're, they're sub 50. Sub 50 means contractionary. Um, so there are some warning signs pointing to a potential slowdown. Um, again, I think the consumer is going to continue to get stressed. We are in a, a developed economy. Developed economies, uh, you know, think back to your, you know, Econ 101 class and the inputs that go into GDP. Um, consumption is, you know, 70, 80% of GDP for us here in Canada and the US. Um, so again, you know, as the consumer continues to get stretched, um, you know, I, 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 I think, I think, again, that, that recession is going to come sometime in 2024. Um, now, if you take a look at earnings, I mentioned earnings continually being revised lower, revised lower, revised lower. Um, you know, we take a look at valuations. They aren't super stretched. They're probably a little bit higher than kind of historical averages there. But, you know, if those valuations are up there, they're higher than historical a- averages. That means earnings needs to catch up mm-hmm. for prices to stay where they are. And what we're seeing is earnings getting revised lower and lower and lower. So, um, again, I, I, I don't think that leads to kind of a, a good environment for equities uh, uh, going into the rest of this year and next year. Um, you know, just to jump back to employment as well, we are starting to see some cracks in employment. If you take a look at kind of Jolt's job openings numbers in the U.S., they are trending lower and lower. They're still positive, of course, but they are trending, you know, kind of downwards. And that's kind of one of the first things you see in the employment market. If you think of that conceptually, um, you think about companies and you say, you know, companies are thinking, okay, maybe we're going to have some headwinds moving forward. The first thing, not the first thing they do, but one of the first things they typically do is say, okay, we're going to put job freezes. We're not we're not going into hiring. We're not expanding our cost structure any further. So you're starting to see a little bit of that. Uh, another data point is temporary workers. So think of like contract workers and stuff of that nature. That's typically the second thing you see. You say, okay, you know, we're not adding new jobs. We're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna continue with contract workers. Right. We're gonna slim down further. And then typically the next thing you start seeing is initial jobless claims creep up a little bit higher. And we have seen it start to creep up a little bit higher as well. So you know, is it just kind of a short-term blip or is this more of a longer-term trend? Obviously, we'll we'll have our answer in a few months, but um, from where I'm sitting, um, you know, we're starting to see cracks there as well. So again, as we know, ties back to the consumer as well. If folks aren't working, folks aren't consuming. Right. And do you think that the uh, risk of this in Canada, would you 
say it's higher than in the states? I, I would again, you know, you know, kind of tying back to the strength of the consumer again. I think yeah. I think folks are certainly feeling the pinch um, a little bit more here in Canada relative to our American counterparts. Again, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, um, you know, inflation is going in the right direction, um, but when you take a look at kind of um, you know real wages and have wages kept up with inflation. And you'll take a look from like 2020 to now. So start of the start of uh, the pandemic to now, um, wages have not kept up in with inflation. So from a real dollars perspective, folks are a little bit poorer as well. Um, so that's obviously not a positive development for the economy as well. Um, so so again, um, yeah, I think I think us here in Canada, we do have we are going to have a tougher time. And 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 also when you do jump into that inflation number a little bit more, I mentioned it is coming down. We're getting to more comfortable numbers here in Canada and the U.S. Probably going to hit that two percent target, you know, potentially by year end, probably sometime in Q1 of next year. Um, but you know, one important when you kind of break out the you know the components of those CPIs, one one component that's still relatively hot is you know food inflation. Um, that's a big expense for folks as well. Um, so that's certainly taking a bite out of folks' discretionary spending as well. You know, just having to spend more money on groceries, you're obviously going to have less money to spend it on, again, those, those discretionary spends, whether it's you know, goods or services. How do you reconcile um, data, like all of the data points that you just uh, drew on? How do you reconcile those sorts of data points with things like, uh, I think, a forecast of 5.8% growth in Q3 from the Atlanta Fed that came out earlier this week. I mean, there's all sorts of these uh, headlines and signals that people read that seem incredibly positive. Uh, but then at the same time, there's all these things that you just drew attention to, which under the surface seem uh, much less positive. How do you fit those things together? Yeah, it seems, uh, to be honest, their, their forecast seems a bit ambitious. When you take a look at kind of you know, the, the Wall Street forecast for the economy uh, just for the year, it's I think it's, you know, somewhere around 2% is the forecast for, for, for the whole year this year. And I think for next year, that gets, you know, sub sub 1% growth forecast. So there's certainly a disconnect between kind of the, uh, you know, the Fed numbers and, and kind of what analysts are expecting. Um, you know, if you take a look at, you know, kind of a whole bunch of the the investment banks down in the U.S. There's there's a ton of them that are forecasting a recession for next mm-hmm. year. So, um, you know, maybe you know maybe we do have a decent Q3 and a not so bad Q4. And again, the the, the shoe starts to drop in Q1 of Q2 next year. Um, but again, I, th- I think most people are expecting us to get into that recessionary environment sometime next year. And again, when you when you do get under the hood of the data, it's it's not quite as rosy as as uh, you know some of those headlines might lead you to believe. So this is just a situation of uh, you think this is kind of like an aberration this forecast that came out. Yeah, I would I would take the under on their forecast if I was a betting man to be perfectly honest. I, yeah. I, I, I just <laughs> I just don't see it. I mean, I could be wrong, but I I'm, I I would take the under on that for sure. Okay, fair enough. Uh, another potential risk, which is in the headlines a lot these days, is uh, China. Now. Maybe we could just talk about um, how you view that situation. You know, we've had uh, stories the past couple of days about the property market there, some of the developers there who are going underwater, um, and then just a lot of 
data, which I don't know, maybe is not so credible. Uh, certain things that they're now saying that they're not going to report on at all anymore, like you know, youth unemployment. Do you think that there are serious risks from what's going on in China's economy? Yeah, for sure. And kind of, kind of something that really signaled it is last week, I believe, uh, could have been early on this week, uh, either late last week or early on this week. They they had a rate decision in China, and they surprisingly cut interest rates and injected liquidity. So that certainly doesn't reinstill confidence that everything is going all right there. Um, you know, as we know, China is a massive export market. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier, if you take a look at some manufacturing numbers um, in North America, they're kind of in, in contractionary territory. So, you know, is China's woes kind of more of a reflection of kind of the rest of the world slowing down as well? And as a result, China's mm-hmm. having a slowdown. Um, that's certainly a potential thesis for sure. Um, and I think there is some truth to that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't generally get a sense that, you know, things are just fine under the hood in China. Again, with, with Chinese data as well, you kind of have to take things with a grain of salt there. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly, um, you know, how can I put this lightly? You know, sometimes their data gets massaged. Um, you know, the way they report data, you have like the individual governors of each different kind of state data there in China, and they amalgamate. There's a lot of pressure to say, you know, everyone needs to get 6% growth, 6% growth, 6% growth, or, or whatever the number is that they use. Um, so there's a lot of pressure, and you do often see kind of fudging some numbers. So you do have to take things with a grain of salt. But again, tying it back to you know the emergency liquidity injection, the lowering of the rates, you know the cracks you're seeing in their real estate and real estate development market. Um, again, if if you think back to 2021, there was there were a lot of cracks that were already showing up in the real estate market. You got a couple defaults way back when, um, I believe it was September 2021. Um, so I think this is a continuation of that. Um, so I certainly do think there's some some risks in China right now. Certainly, an area from an equity perspective that I would be very cautious in investing in at this at this point in time, especially if you kind of buy into the the, the recession thesis as well. Obviously, if we're not consuming here in North America or in Europe, you know, we're not buying Chinese goods, and they're not growing as fast as they could be. Are there any uh, spillover risks? that people should be aware of there. Like I think the Wall Street Journal article this morning, the headline was, is this China's Lehman moment? And that had, you know, obviously huge consequences for Canada when there was the actual Lehman moment. Does a Chinese Lehman moment pose the same sort of risks to uh, the Canadian economy and to investors here who are maybe not buying, you know, Chinese stocks, but are just have a, you know, pretty normal balanced portfolio yeah so the the issue with lehman is you know everyone kind of had some exposure to lehman um you know whether it's european banks canadian banks what have you um it's not so much the case in china um you know our our western banks don't have a ton of exposure there's certainly some exposure out there um but no i'm just thinking back to you know i went through this exercise again in in 21 there when when there were those concerns and, and people were asking the question back then and kind of the, the high level answer there is, you know, the, the exposure just isn't there. Surely, you know, there, there's folks who own Chinese equities and obviously, you know, you could take a hit there. But from a contagion perspective, you know, the Chinese economy is still, um, especially when you talk about their capital accounts, is still pretty closed off and ring fenced off from the rest of the world. Um, so, again, that's good from a contagion perspective because we wouldn't yeah. expect to see it. Um, so kind of a short answer. Uh, 
you know, TLDR is, you know, I, I don't think there's this massive risk of contagion. Um, it, the, the biggest loser here is going to be the Chinese economy and the Chinese people. Okay. So I think uh, one last question is all we have uh, time for here. But I am curious to get your view just for people who are looking ahead and looking at forecasts that are coming out. You know, Goldman Sachs saying we're going to have rate cuts in second quarter of 2024. Um, how do you digest information like that as a regular person with a portfolio? Like, how, if you think that if you buy that story that, you know, we're, we are going to have rate cuts, maybe there'll be a, a recession, I don't know. Um, what sort of decisions should you make with regards to your own portfolio? Yeah, so it's a great question. So I think I think the rate cuts, you know, I, I think the reason the forecast for rate cuts around that time is because that's around the similar time everyone's forecasting recession. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to get into, I, I, you know, I, I think the way this progresses is you get, you know, you get that downturn in, in growth, Q1, Q2. Um, just as a refresher, the definition of a recession is two negative quarters of GDP. Um and so again, I think that's why markets are doing that forecast for sometime mid mid you know twenty twenty four for the rate cuts. Similar story if you take a look at you know the Canada side as well. Market is pricing in rate cuts for Canada sometime in you know kind of Q two Q three of next year as well. Um, so I think what you're going to see there, you're going to you're going to see the economic shoes start to drop. Your equities are probably going to take a bit of a hit to the downside. Obviously. I think your bonds are going to do well for you in that scenario. I think you're going to see rates start to move a lot lower. Um, you know, certainly in anticipation of the Fed cutting rates, um, that front end of the yield curve, it's, it's super inverted right now. You're getting, you know, five, five and a half percent on the front end and, you know, probably, you know, around four percent on the back end. So, you know, you, you're probably going to see that it, yield curve kind of start to uninvert itself at some point. Um, so again, fixed income, I think is really going to be your friend in that scenario. I think you really need to start thinking of, about how to, how to position your portfolio defensively in that environment. Um, because again, you, you, you do want to protect things on the downside. So think of your defensive sectors, your, you know, consumer defense of your healthcare, your utilities. So those are, those are typically defensive sectors. If you're trying to analyze portfolio managers, you know, take a look at those portfolio managers that have good da- downside capture numbers. Uh, so again, those are the numbers that we referenced earlier, just in terms of, you know, th- those, those portfolio managers who are really focused on downside protection. And again, you're still going to go down, market goes down, you're still going to go down. But again, you know, downside outperformance is super, super important when you talk about compounding returns over, you know, 10, 20, 30 year investable period, um, arguably can be just as important as kind of capturing the market on the top side there. So, um, again, you know, think about how your portfolio is positioned, where are your risks, are you defensive, take a look at your fixed income, where are you invested in? Uh, I think bonds and duration are going to be your friend. I think it's really something folks should take a look at, especially in this back half of the year here. Um, just how they're positioned with their fixed income sleeve, uh, because again, I think I think fixed income is really going to be your friend um, sometime next year, especially if we do get into that recessionary environment. Okay, great. That's a, a great actionable uh, insight to leave off on. So, Andre, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Taylor. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. 
I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And if you like this episode and want to see all of our past episodes, you can search for Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed it, please do leave us a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.